men and women both do this, where they see something in the other person that they really need to be paying attention to, but they want to ignore it because we're optimistic creatures, really. We're, we're strange because we're pessimistic as we move through the world. And, and if we hear a rustling in the bush, we assume it's a predator. But then when we see something that we want, we get bizarrely optimistic about it. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Join me as I dig into the question of how people like you and I might get more out of life and love. Thanks for being here. How are you doing, friends? Hope you're doing well. Hope your month is off to a good start. As some of you might know, uh, if you follow me on Instagram, I was doing Sober October. No uh, alcohol or any illicit substances for a month. And I'm feeling good. I'm feeling like my body is happier than it was a month or so ago. And, uh, it, you know, people make a big deal out of going out and not drinking and, you know, dealing with social pressure to drink and stuff. But it's really not that bad if you kind of stand your ground and, and you're committed to it. And, uh, you know, this isn't a newsflash, I'm sure, to many of you, but you can have a hell of a good time without, uh, without indulging. There are moments when I missed it, of course, I'm not going to lie. I think uh, particularly when I was DJing, I DJ sometimes, and I did miss it on certain occasions when I'm watching everyone dancing and having a good time, and I'm just really, you know, a beer or a glass of wine would be really nice, but for the most part, it was pretty good, and I'm feeling good, and uh, yeah, I'm glad I completed the, the challenge. I've got a good one for you today on the show. Again, this is probably something I say to you just about every week, um, but I'm excited to share this one. Dr. Sean T. Smith is a clinical psychologist based in Denver, Colorado. He's the author of a book called The Practical Guide to Men, and a book that I read recently and uh, really had a big impact on me called The Tactical Guide to Women. How Men Can Manage Risk in Marriage and Dating. And if you get the sense from the titles of those books that they're anti-marriage or pessimistic about relationships or anything, uh, that's, that's not right at all, actually. He's, he's definitely an optimist. He's pro-marriage, I would say. He's just pro-smart marriage. And his book for women, The Practical Guide to Men, and his book for men, The Tactical Guide to Women, are really aimed at enabling all of us to have better relationships, to attract better people into our lives, to cut out the people who are not going to be good for us, and how to make you know what is probably the most momentous, consequential decision of our entire lives, which is you know who are we going to marry, who are we going to settle down with. This is something that I think deserves a lot of consideration, a lot of very careful thinking, and his books are a really great way to help someone do that, and they've certainly helped me do that over the past six months or so. In today's episode of Humans in Love, Dr. Smith and I talk about everything I was just talking about. We stay pretty close to looking at marriage, and he talks about his own marriage. We talk about ways that we can attract the right people into our lives and screen out the ones who might not be good for us. This is a really valuable episode, and I really hope you stick around and listen to all of it. Before we get into it, I'll remind you that ratings and reviews, subscriptions, are absolutely crucial for a podcast success. So if you like Humans in Love and you'd like me to keep doing this, please be sure to subscribe to the show 
and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice. Without any further ado, I present to you Dr. Sean T. Smith. So first off, I noticed in your Twitter bio, you describe yourself as the world's first unapologetically male psychologist, and I found that interesting. Um, what are you getting at there? Well, that might have been a little, little bit of tongue-in-cheek there, but um, there's a certainly a bias in my profession that leans toward the female way of doing relationships and the female way of, of moving through the world. Uh, not Not particularly hostile toward men in general, but certainly not very welcoming to the male way of doing things in life, I think, in my profession. And I'd make a distinction there between the academic side and the clinical side. I find in the academic side, you know, I spend a lot of time in school and the academic side is, I think, a little more hostile toward men. The clinical side, people like me out in the trenches working with real people every day, much more tolerant um, in my experience. Okay. I, I'm curious to know more about your background. And I, I was watching another interview I believe it was with Richard Cooper from Entrepreneurs in Cars, the YouTube channel. And you talk about basically kind of growing up in a bar. And you were talking a little bit about how that uh, experience kind of impacted you. And, and I'd like to know more about that. So what, what was that experience like? How did those, and how did those formative experiences uh, inform your work today? Well, growing up in a bar, uh, it really intrigued me about human nature. And I guess maybe I, maybe I just had that predisposition in predisposition anyway, and being in a bar environment brought it out in me. But you know, I'd look around at what was going on when I was between like the ages of nine and 16, when I was working at the bar with the family. And I would see people having troubles with their relationships and their jobs. And I would see some people doing well and some people doing poorly. And, uh, you know, of course, a bar is it was a bar and restaurant. So we had staff and we had regular customers and got to really kind of get a, a view of what goes on in life between people. And then we also had People coming through once in a while that weren't regulars, but they would cause a little bit of trouble. And watching how my father handled them, he was he was just he artfully handled people, and that got me intrigued. But as far as the relationship side, you know, I, I noticed early on that guys would come in, and the the guys that were regulars, and and sometimes they would have job problems, sometimes they would have family problems, sometimes they would have relationship problems, and I noticed as a pretty young kid that it was the relationship problems that really tore guys up. Like they could lose their job and they'd go out and get a new job. They could have family problems and they could distance themselves from that. But man, when they went through divorce or they just went through relationship problems, it, it really tore them up. And so I got curious pretty early about how relationships work between men and women. And what, what are some of the lessons that you took from that bar? Like a, how, how, how do those experiences play into your work today, do you think? Well, I had a pretty early exposure to topics of sex and topics of men and women fighting and topics of people choosing each other. Like I remember there was a customer and an employee, a female employee and a, and a male customer. And I remember them uh, hitting it off romantically. And the scuttlebutt around the bar was that these two were going to be an absolute disaster and everybody could see it but those two and of course they got married very very quickly they got married and 
everybody was right. It was an absolute disaster. It wasn't just a breakup. It was an ugly breakup with hurt feelings and, and money problems and all kinds of stuff. And it didn't take very long for that to happen. And so I got very curious early on about why people choose each other and how they choose each other and are they using the right criteria. And that led me eventually, you know, couple, you know a few decades down the road to reading about evolutionary psychology and all of the relationship literature that's out there and comparing the two evolutionary psychology, what evolutionary psychology says and what the relationship literature says. And a lot of times there's, there's a little bit of a clash there because what we are predisposed to seek in each other, men and women, it's not always what works in relationships. Could you talk more about that? I realize that's a massive can of worms, but uh, what do you mean by that? Well, for example, um, to the um, the oversimplified version of what women look for in each other, like men want women who look good physically, that's oversimplified, but that's one of the first things we look for. And women, to oversimplify it, want men who are socially connected and successful. So women being sex objects and men being success objects. And so the qualities that say, say that a person, a woman is a good sex object or a man is a good success object, they're not always the qualities that will work well in a relationship long term. So for example, when a woman chooses a man who is real socially connected and he's schematic um, and he has all those of somebody who's going to be able to do the things that evolutionary psychology, evolutionary psychology says we want, which says women want, which is kindness, the ability to provide intelligence and industriousness. Industriousness; those are the big four that women tend to look for at a very basic level. The markers of those from a distance, when you first meet someone, they're not always the markers that lead to a good relationship. Uh, five or 10 years down the road. And as a clinical psychologist, I see this in my office all the time. I hear women saying that they chose a man because he had these kind of qualities. But then later on, it turns out that he, she finds him to be overbearing and distant and too connected to other people and not connected enough to her. It's a very common complaint. And men have a very common inverse complaint when they look for the markers of a good sex object. They often find out down the road that the values just don't Square and she's, you know, people will come in and and both sides will say, well, this just isn't the person I married. And well, actually, yeah, it is the person you married. You just weren't looking at the whole picture. Hmm. So as I mentioned before we started recording, uh, I'm 31, and I, I mentioned that I wanted to talk to you for largely selfish reasons <laughs> because I'm single, and uh, it seems like all my friends are getting married in the past couple of years. And I want to be clear, I'm not referring to any of my friends specifically, but just in general, for a long time now, it continually amazes me how so many people seem to rush the, the courtship process, rush into marriage, and don't give this, I mean, important is such an understatement, this incredibly momentous decision of their lives, the care and consideration that it deserves. Why do you think that is? Why do you think so many people rush this process, rush into these relationships? And I know that that's a big question, but I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Because it it, for, it it doesn't make sense to me, and it really never has. And I, I'd love to know what you think. Yeah, and it, it never made sense to me either because I got that dose of reality so early on in life yeah. that people should really take their time. But you mentioned that you read The Tactical Guide to Women, and I credit some local researchers, local being Denver, I'm in Denver, Colorado, and there are some researchers here at the University of Denver who've really examined this question of people rushing into relationships. And 
I, yeah, I think what happens is that this is nature, our nature working against us in a way, because when we're infatuated with someone and we're in that stage where we want to be buying the puppy and getting the apartment and doing all the things to um, solidify that relationship, we're really motivated to do that when we're in the honeymoon phase, which is a colloquialism, but there's also a little bit of reality to it that we go through this neurologically impaired phase where our, our brains aren't functioning the way they normally would. Nick, I, you know, it's hard to know when this lasts, but anywhere between six and 18 months, we're in this view, we're in this mindset where we're under the influence of our own neurochemistry. And that's when we want to make these big decisions. But that's the worst time to make these big decisions. And this is what the researchers here in Denver are finding is that really you need to get beyond that phase of infatuation. And then the other person really starts to show up. But it's that, you know, it's impulse and instinct that pushes people to decide quickly. And um, it's a bad idea as you're as you're noticing. Well, hopefully it works out well with your friends because it does work <laughs> out well sometimes. Of course. Yeah, of course. Yeah. What What is the timeline you recommend? Is it 18, at least 18 months courtship? Well, in the book, I talk about waiting until the real person shows up. And it's hard to put a specific time to that. Like, mm -hmm. I can't say wait 14 and a half months. Instead, I think there's other things to look for. Like, when you start to notice that that other person is becoming more of a human being to you, meaning that the qualities that you first were drawn to in them start to annoy you a little bit. And you're starting to see them as a three-dimensional person. So the person who is a free spirit and you're attracted to them because they're a free spirit, as you leave that honeymoon phase and your, your neurochemistry starts to return to baseline, that free-spiritedness might take on a little bit of flavor of flightiness and it might become a little bit irritating to you. So when you start to see little markers like that, then you know that you're coming out of that honeymoon phase and then then you're dealing with the real person and then you give it some time. You know, I, I like the idea of four seasons. Let's see how a person dances in the summer and in the winter. And then um, when, when you go through a few conflicts and a few rough spots in life, then you have a good sense of what they are as a person. Hmm. Well, let's, let's dig into it a little bit. And you mentioned uh, your book for men, The Tactical Guide to Women which I could not recommend more for any, especially any guys around my age. Uh, it, it, I really got a, a tremendous amount out of it. I think I'm on my third rereading or something. It, it's, it's very good. And it's, it's a okay. nice sort of grounding in, in, um, in things to look for, for, for men. But you also wrote a book before that called The Practical Guide to Men. So if someone were to ask you, what are the main things that women should be looking for in a potential husband? You know, what makes a guy husband material? What are the first things that come to mind? I realize there's a lot, but what are the, what are the, some of the big ones that, that uh, you'd recommend? Well, there's a little bit of commonality between both books, The Practical Guide to Men and the, and the Tactical Guide to Women, one of them being good mental health. And good mental health doesn't mean that the person you're, you're considering doesn't have any problems because everybody's got some problems. Good mental health means that they're willing to confront those problems and deal with them. So if they're depressed, they're getting treated. If they've got addiction problems, they're getting treated. And a lot of times when people out of those mental health problems, they're actually better partners than they would have been had they not gone through them because they've had to do a lot of work. So there's that kind of stuff that's crossover and emotional maturity is, is a crossover. And it looks a little bit different in men and women. So qualities like emotional maturity in men look a little different than mature, emotional maturity in women. But I think one of the big, the big mistakes that is 
is uh, specific to women is that a lot of women don't understand, and I think particularly over the last few decades, that one of the most important things that keeps a man healthy and functioning in the world is his sense of purpose. And every guy needs to know why he's getting up in life and what he's you know getting up out of bed in the morning and what he's doing in life and where he's going. And women need this too, of course. But Men need this in a different way than women. This is kind of fundamental to how we function and move through the world. And it's really one of the first things that women need to understand about men if they're actually considering getting married because this sense of purpose that makes him healthy and functioning also gets in the way of the relationship a little bit if the person, if the two people don't understand how it functions and how to work with it. That's such a crucial point. How do you think, because I think some guys, you know, this point about purpose and masculine purposes is so incredibly important and it's becoming um, more and more sort of common knowledge among people, I would say, um, owing to the work of people like Dr. Robert Glover and David Data and all the rest. I mean, how do you think a woman can tell if a man is truly living his purpose? Because I think it's easy to fake. You know, I, I realize that might be kind of a difficult question, but... What are some of the signs of a man, do you think, who's living his true purpose? Um, well, let's see. Let me let me give it some thought here. It's been a minute since I considered this book because I wrote it a while ago. But things like uh, – quite there are specific questions that you can ask like is he part of something larger than himself? In other words, is it is he just – living life as an individual, which some guys do, you know, some guys are lone wolves and that's fine. But is he part of a team? He's part of something bigger than himself. Is he maintaining his man card? Meaning does he pay attention to how, um, how he relates to other men and what his, what his standing is with other men? And this is something that women don't have to deal with quite as much as men or they deal with it in a different way that, uh, you know, essentially when a woman reaches physical maturity, she's considered a woman, but a man isn't really considered a man. And this is something that has been found across cultures and throughout time. A man isn't really considered a man until he has some achievements. And that shows up differently in different cultures. In Western culture, a man is considered a man when he has essentially ongoing achievements. Like he gets some promotions, he gets a raise, he gets the things that are markers of a person who's doing something in the world. So those kind of questions. Another one is, is he striving to to do good in the world? Is he just striving to be the kind of man that other people look up to? And sometimes that means that he has to disappoint people. And that's one of the things to really look for. Like, is this guy willing to disappoint people because he's working toward a larger set of values? And if he's willing to hurt some feelings once in a while, that might not look good on the surface, but it could actually be an indication that this is a guy who's actually trying to move through the world with a sense of meaning. Hmm. Just staying on this theme, I'm always curious to ask guys like you uh, about about your own purpose. I mean, do you feel like you're living your purpose? And if so, how has the process been of, of uh, discovering it and, and living it? It's ongoing. You know, it's, it's always mm. developing for me. And I, I'm, I'm sure a lot of guys would would describe something similar. But yeah, I'm, I'm still developing my purpose and I'm still finding what I, how I can make the biggest dent in the universe and have the biggest effect. If you don't mind my asking, this is another one that I, I had to ask you. Did you always know that you wanted to get married? And, and how did you know that you were ready for that? Um, because I'm, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm curious about is how do we vet ourselves that we actually have the maturity and the, you know, the, um, the emotional wherewithal to handle something like marriage? Um, so yeah, what, what about your own experience of that? 
Um, that's a that's an interesting question. My wife and I were talking about this this weekend because we're coming up on 19 years, I think. Yeah, something like that. 19, 20 years. I think it's 19 years. And we were talking about when we first got married and what a difficult transition it was for me. And I was I'm 51 now, so I was roughly 30, like your friends. And I was not as awake as I am now. Most people aren't. You know, 20 years will will give you a lot of change in perspective. And it was a very difficult perspective or change for me because I had been living on my own for a dozen years and doing what I want and when I want. And I always knew that I wanted a family. But when it came time to um, to actually put that in motion, she was the one that that said, Hey, you know, we need to, and she didn't give me an ultimatum, but she said, you know, we need to decide what we're doing here. And I would not have married her. if She was the kind of person who gives ultimatums. You know, she, she pointed out that there was a decision to be made and it was my decision to make. And so, uh, decided to, that this really was the direction I want to go. I was following my values and it was tough for a while. It was very difficult to go from 12 years of doing exactly what I want to having to consider somebody else. But, um, yeah, 20, you know, 20 years later, it absolutely was the right decision for me. I can't imagine what my life would be like had I not decided that. But I also was awake enough at the time that I had some sense of what not to choose, more what not to choose than I knew what to choose. But um, I, I was smart enough to know how to rule people out and smart enough to know that she was compatible with me. Hmm. Do you think it's just time that that made you a better husband? Is this, is 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 it as simple as that, or was there like a teacher or a you know your own um, therapy practice, or or what what do you think allowed you to, to sort of grow into marriage a little easier? Well, I could not have done it had it not squared with my values, and that's the reason I did it, and that's the reason that I stuck with it is that I knew that I was pursuing some values that were important to me. And because of that, that's, you know, it, it was easy. And I, and I may be overstating the case. There was a, the first year was kind of difficult for me. Then after that, it was, I was actually saying, yeah, this is pretty nice. I, I like this. And this feels like I'm going the direction I want to go in. And so I think if it's not a clear part of your values that you want to have this in your life, then it's pretty risky to bring something into your life unless it's really important to you. Yeah. Needless to say, high risk, high reward, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Yeah. We, we were talking about some attributes that women should be looking for in a potential husband. I'd like to get into your book, uh, The Tactical Guide to Women, a little bit now, a little more deeply. Um, you hear the phrase wife material a lot, especially I do at, these, you know, at this age. You know, People are saying, you know, I think she's wife material, blah, blah, blah. When you hear that phrase, what comes to mind? And what are some of the, the main characteristics do you think that men should be looking for in a potential wife? Well, can I ask you first, what do your friends mean when you when they say that word wife material? I think they often mean low drama, low complication, not a lot of um, theatrics and um, big fights. Quite often they mean a nice body. You know, like sometimes it comes down to, I think, uh, simply physical attributes uh -huh. but when I hear that, I, to my mind at least, I think they're often referring to uh, low drama. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. I think that's a, how I've heard it used as well. And I think that's not a bad uh, bar to set, but it's a pretty – what's the word I'm looking for here? It's it's not very precise. It's a good, it's a good blunt instrument, but um, maybe not terribly refined. I think that's the word I'm looking for. So essentially what I think what you what I'm hearing you say is that when guys use that term 
wife material. They're just trying to rule out people who are going to be a major problem in their life. And they're not, not necessarily looking at who's actually going to be a good fit. Is that, am I hearing that right? Yeah, I think that's, that's well put. Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah, there's three, three broad categories that, that I try to take it from that. Let's not just rule people out. Let's actually look at what's, who's going to be a good fit in your life. And I try to take it more in that direction. And well, I shouldn't say that because there's a lot of, in the book, there's a lot of criteria for ruling people out. You have to start there, but then beyond that, um, who do you rule in? And so I look at uh, three main qualities. There's clarity, which is the ability to be uh, assertive in her needs and reliable in her in her pursuits in life and inquisitive when there's problems coming up. Rather, you know, I think this is the opposite side of drama. A, a dramatic person just gets all wrapped up about problems. An inquisitive person says, all right, why is this problem happening and what can we do about it? So that's one of the main qualities. And then there's, so there's clarity with those, with those, um, criteria underneath it. Then there's maturity, which really gets into things like emotional nuance. And this is such an important thing in, in, in your spouse or your girlfriend, somebody who's able to view you as a whole mix of good and bad qualities or, or qualities that they like and qualities that they dislike. And they have the ability to say when things are going bad, um, I'm mad at you right now and I still love you. So we're going to get through this. So that kind of maturity and then stability is sort of what we were talking about earlier, where if she's got something going on or some kind of mental struggle or emotional struggle, does she have the ability and the drive to fix it and get beyond it? And I also, um, you know, one last quick point, I get into things like personality disorders. And that's such an important thing for men to look for in women because the personality disorders like narcissism and borderline personality disorder, these kind of disorders, people can present as very charismatic and the relationships feel wonderful in the beginning. It's, it's just like a super drug because you're idealized and they are just physically, they're, they're all over you and they some of the some people with personality disorders really are good at bringing people into their lives and seducing people but then of course things fall apart at some point and um i outline some of the criteria of, of personality disorders so that guys know what to look for and hopefully what to avoid yeah so most of the tactical guide to women is focused on the present um, things we've been talking about, like noticing things in the present, noticing uh, present behavior and characteristics. And I was really curious, how much weight do you think we should give someone's past when we're considering marrying them? I mean, people do change, uh, as you know, better than, than most people. But how much investigating into, the, into their past should we do? And, and just more generally, how much weight do you think we should give a person's past when we're considering, you know, settling down with them? That's a really interesting question. I like that question. I think you definitely need to pay attention to people's past um, and things to look for. Like look for, I think I talk a little bit about this, but maybe I should have talked more about it in the book is looking for patterns in people's relationships over time. And I do talk a little bit about how she relates to her ex-boyfriends because how she relates to her exes is how she's going to relate to you someday. So if she's calling them names and they're all the worst person in the world. Well, guess what you're headed for. But if she still has respectful relationships with her exes and she speaks about them in admiring terms, then okay, that's a good sign. But as far as people's past, you know, sometimes people have pretty adventurous past and <laughs> 
particularly guys. Guys, uh, we're knuckleheads when we're in our late teens and early 20s because our brains are not fully developed and we do stupid things and make stupid decisions. Sometimes we hurt people. I was a bit of a, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, I was not a particularly nice guy and, and I did some things that I wasn't real proud of, um, as I'm sure a lot of people have, but um, I outgrew that. And so I don't, by the time I was 30, those things weren't really a factor because they hurt me. Meaning when I, I looked back at them, these are things that I did not want to repeat. So to the extent that my wife knew about them, um, you know, and it's not like I went out and committed crimes or anything. It's just relationship stuff and me not being particularly good to other people. Um, to the extent that she knew about them, she could say, well, he's, he's clearly not happy about these things. And he clearly has changed and made intentional changes. And I think that looking at people's past mistakes, um, if they can speak about them as if they're part of their history and they learn from them and by God, they're not going to do that again, then that's actually kind of a good thing to have those mistakes in your past. Um, I, you know, I, now that you mentioned the question, I wonder if it's actually better to have somebody in, who has some mistakes in their past because those are character building. Certainly. No, I would certainly agree with that. And as long as we're exploring this, uh, this terrain, another question that was on my must ask list, what is your take on the cliche of men needing to quote unquote, sow their wild oats before settling down? Um, and I would say that even applies to a lot of modern women. There's this idea out there that, you know, you need to go a little crazy for a while, you know, date a lot of people, whatever, um, in order to sort of get that exploration out of your system, so to speak. I mean, do you think there's anything to that? Do you think that's that's necessary for modern men and women in general? W what's your take on that? Yeah, absolutely. We think about what a, what a high school kid does uh, when we have high school relationships. We're trying on relationships. We've never done it before. We have no, no idea how they work. They all turn out bad at 99% of them turn out well, not bad necessarily, but they don't work because we're choosing based on the wrong criteria. Get into your 20s. Maybe you're, you're still trying on relationships, but maybe they last a little bit longer. And then, you know, by late 20s, early 30s, you should have some sense of what works and what doesn't. And that's really what I think you need to be looking for is this person's past relationship that you're considering. Have they actually learned from them or are they just doing the same thing over and over again? So, yeah, definitely there's there's a lot of trying on relationships that people should be doing. In your therapeutic pra practice, in your office, do you have a lot of guys coming in who have this feeling that they wish they'd gone a little crazier in their youth, or do you not really encounter that that much? I've not heard a lot about that, no. I, I, some people, the, the regrets that I hear in my practice, because I do work with a lot of guys, it's more along the lines of getting married too soon, committing too soon before they found their purpose, and their regrets, at least in my experience, tend to be more around not fulfilling their purpose as much as they wish they had when they were younger, which would have put them at a better place when, by the time they're talking to me. Do you think that's largely related to financial stress? Like just not finding, you know, not finding a job that makes them enough money or choosing the wrong careers or things like that? You know, I, I hear so many guys right now who are complaining about and I'd be curious what, what your thoughts are on this, but guys who are complaining about getting into these big organizations that turn out to be very bureaucratic and there's a lot of meetings and there's a lot of nonsense that doesn't really get them further down the roads in terms of like, you know, if they're a computer programmer, they want to be programming computers, not going to meetings all day. And so they're not building their skills and there's, they're stagnating and they're just pulled in 17 different directions at once. And that's really 
I think the most common complaint I'm hearing right now is that people got pulled into these situations that just don't fit. What do you hear from your peers? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm thankfully I'm self-employed and I have been for pretty much my entire adult, adult life. Very lucky in that regard, but I have a lot of friends, particularly young uh, male friends, who are stuck in exactly the kind of position that you uh, you just described, and it's it's truly soul crushing. Like you were talking about masculine purpose and having direction and and feeling useful, right? Like feeling like your life has has meaning, feeling like your labor has a real impact in the world. And I hear from a lot of guys who who don't feel that at all. There was a book I was just uh, looking at recently. I forget the name of the author, but it's called Bullshit Jobs. And this is what <laughs> a lot of people uh, nowadays are employed in. Jobs that, you know, don't have real relevance, jo- you know, jobs that are outdated, jobs that involve people spending a lot of their time in these, you know, stupid meetings that really serve no purpose other than to inflate the boss's ego, whatever. Um, and I think I think you're right. I think it's important. And I think particularly for guys, it's it's just soul crushing, you know, like we want to feel like our lives have meaning. We want to feel like when we show up in the world, it matters. And I think if you're a guy in, in, in a job where you're feeling a bit useless, I mean, it, I think it's going to be tough to show up in your marriage as, as you know, the, the best version, uh, the best husband you can be if you're if you're sort of carrying that weight around with you. So, yeah, I think you're you're right on the point on point. There. Yeah. And, and I would I would take you to task on one point they're not really taking a task but you said you're lucky enough to be self-employed you've made choices i mean you said you've been doing this your entire life being self-employed so you've made decisions that have brought you to this point and this is not to beat up on guys who have made other decisions because so many guys who end up in these bullshit jobs i'm gonna have to read that book by the way (laughs) so many of them thought that they were doing the thing that was going to lead them to fulfill their purpose. And that's what's so painful to them. That's why they, they're so miserable going to these meetings and so forth, because they got sold a bill of goods. This was what they, what they were supposed to be doing. But in any event, because of the choices that you've made, this is where you are now. And I would say that, um, you know, any woman who's considering marrying you is getting a guy who is probably fairly well in touch with his purpose and what he's doing because when you're self-employed, you have to solve a lot of problems and you have to make a lot of little decisions about your values. And and does this value, does this decision today fit with my values? Then okay, I'm gonna do it even though it's tough. So yeah, it's and I to your point, I think that it this desperation really does show up in marriages when guys are struggling with their sense of purpose because they have a bullshit job. Hmm. I'm, I'm going to quote you in my online dating profile, Dr. Smith. I hope you don't mind. That's uh, okay. That's a, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that's a nice little uh, endorsement. No, but just so this is a bit of a sidetrack. But again, another topic I'm perpetually interested in is the idea of luck, because I feel like, yeah, like I, you're absolutely right. I've made choices, but I do believe in luck. Do you, do you believe in luck? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, yeah. you know, just being being born in Western culture in the late uh, 20th century or early 21st century. My God, that's like winning the lottery right there. So yeah, absolutely believe in luck. Yeah. You, uh, you tweeted something. I know I'm going back to Twitter now. You tweeted something that interested me. You said by ignoring unpleasant information, we avoid drawing threatening conclusions said everyone who married the wrong person. I thought that was funny. and And I wanted to know what you meant by that. Could you, could you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think that was a study that I found, and I I was just yes, it was. <laughs> summarizing the study. I said, well, I was putting, I was twisting the study essentially, but 
ignoring information. This is this is the biggest mistake that I don't know. There's so many mistakes to make, but men and women both do this where they see something in the other person that they really need to be paying attention to, but they want to ignore it because we're optimistic creatures. Really, we're we're strange because we're pessimistic as we move through the world. and, And if we hear a rustling in the bush, we assume it's a predator. But then when we see something that we want, we get bizarrely optimistic about it. And so we want to ignore qualities in people that we really should be paying attention to. Quote from the, the tactical guide to women that I found intriguing. Um, and you expanded on it, but I, I'd like to know more. The happiest couples I know celebrate and capitalize on their differences. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, there's, as I'm, I don't know, <laughs> there is this tendency in society, probably since the sexual revolution, there are people out there who are very loud. And I think the sexual revolution is a great thing, um, made life better for men and women. But what happens with any large movement is that once the movement has accomplished what it has set out to accomplish, then only the crackpots stay behind and they still, they're, to, they're still fighting the same old battle. And so we have a lot of people who want men and women to be exactly the same because they confuse equality with equality of outcome. Equality of opportunity and equality of outcome are two different things. And so equality of opportunity is really what I think the sexual revolution was about. But then we have people who are screaming about equality of outcome and that men and women to have uh, equality of outcome need to be exactly the same. And so there's, there's this huge contingency and we find it a lot on college campuses to try to minimize the differences between men and women rather than saying, hey, this is a great thing. We we have male qualities that accomplish these tasks and female qualities that, that are aimed toward these tasks. And when you put them together, it's wonderful. It makes a great society, makes great families. It's just an amazing thing that has evolved over the hundreds of thousands of years. And so what I find in my practice is that people who now, I'm thinking of a couple of couples that I see right now where one member of the couple has this mindset that men and women need to be the same and it doesn't work. It just works very poorly because then you have usually the man who is trying to act like a woman. That's usually how it shakes out. And then women are not happy with that because if they wanted a woman, they would have married a woman, but they married a man, but they're confused about what a man should do. So you know, this, this idea that men and women should be exactly the same, it doesn't work in relationships. Relationships work better when we bring a lot of qualities and different qualities. So I don't know if that answered the question. No, it does. And, and uh, I mean, this is a topic I'm really interested in and the whole idea of amplifying polarity in a relationship and otherwise, you know, emphasizing our positive masculine attributes while our partner sort of emphasizes um, her positive feminine attributes. That is what creates attraction in, in you know, basically so and it's very functional if you think about like all right so you're you're with your family you mother and father and two kids are rolling down the highway and it's raining out and it's bad weather and tire explodes and they get a flat all right so you have one person which would stereotypically be the man would be the one to go out and do the work of changing the tire, getting wet and muddy and dirty and and doing that hard work. And then you have the other partner, stereotypically the woman who would do the hard work of keeping things together emotionally, which is very important. That's arguably just as important as changing the tire is keeping things together emotionally. And I know these are stereotypical traits that I'm describing here in a stereotypical situation, but 
it works better than both people trying to be in charge of changing the tire or both people trying to be in charge of managing the family. Hmm. No, that's well put. And that's a great example. I like that a lot. We're living uh, in a time of, of, it seems like marriage is being challenged and the idea of marriage is being challenged quite a bit in terms of, um, you know, people talking about having open marriages and, you know, this idea of being monogamish, um, ideas around polyamory and things like that. What, what's your take on all that? I mean, do you think that open marriages really can and, and work for people or, or do you think that perhaps it's being um, oversold uh, to a certain extent? I think it's being oversold. And I say that because I, I have I work quite a bit. Well, I shouldn't say quite a bit. My name has gotten out in the, the local community here, my kink and level, leather community. I think just because I'm an open-minded guy and I, I don't freak out when people come in with their fetishes and their lifestyles, mm. um, I, I think it's actually kind of neat and interesting that there are interesting people in the world. But in my experience, it, it's you have to bear in mind, my, my experience is not representative because I'm dealing with people who come into my office and there may be a lot of people that this is working for. But in my experience, open relationships and polyamorous relationships usually lead to somebody getting hurt feelings. And so there are books out there to try to address this problem, like The Ethical Slut is one. And um, there's all kinds of guidelines and rules and structures that people that, that are available to people sort of prepackaged that they can bring into these complicated relationships because they are so complicated and there's so much work. It's, I mean, think about it, just having a husband and wife or boyfriend, girlfriend, that's enough work just to keep the relationship going in the right direction. But then you add a third person into that and a fourth person into that and things get progressively more complicated. So now you don't just have one set of feelings and motivations to worry about. And now you have two set of motivations and feelings to worry about. And I've never seen it work out to where somebody didn't eventually get hurt feelings and that brought the whole thing down, which is not to say that it doesn't work. I'm just saying that I prefer, I was talking to Robert Glover. He wrote No More Mr. Nice Guy a, a few weeks ago, and he made a really brilliant point about this. He said that he prefers relationships with fewer rules and restrictions. And when you get into relationships that have multiple people in them, you have to bring in more rules and more restrictions. And so it's it's a lot of work. If people are getting into it because they think it's easy, that's, that's certainly the wrong motivation. It, it takes a lot of effort. Do you, do you take lessons from your practice, like watching these, these relationships unfold in front of you, basically? Um, do you take those lessons into your own marriage? Like, have you, have you learned a lot just from watching people and you, you actively apply that or use that in your own marriage? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there are plenty of times, you don't have to be a psychologist to do this. There are plenty of times when I see a relationship that just looks miserable and I think, my God, I'm so happy that's not me because number one, it, it just looks miserable. But number two, I'm doing what I want in life and my wife is doing what she wants in life and, and together we're doing good things and that just gets chipped away so badly when you're dealing with bad relationship stuff. I mean, it's just so hard to meet your potential. But beyond that, yeah, there are a lot of times when I will see a behavior in a relationship and I think, uh oh, I'm doing that and I better knock it off because this isn't working for them and it ain't going to work for me. So before I let you go today, what, what is the number one way people can connect with you? Uh, through my website, docsmith.co. Great. 
And sometimes I like to ask my guest uh, three questions at the end, and I'll just ask you to finish these sentences with the first thing that comes to mind. Okay, I'll do my best. Okay. The characteristic I am most drawn to in the opposite sex is? Femininity. I just love, I just love the feminine nature. Amen, brother. That's great. I would most like to be remembered as? A halfway decent father. Hmm. Hopefully a good father. <laughs> Love is. Ah, oh, let me think about that one for a second. <laughs> ah, Love is a concept that we have built up around some evolved adaptations to help us reproduce successfully. How's that? That's not very romantic, is it? <laughs> <laughs> that's my favorite answer yet. I've asked a lot of people, and that's the best one. That's great. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Well, Dr. Smith, thank you so much for your time today. This was a real pleasure. Well, thank you. This was fun. have it my friends i hope you enjoyed our conversation a reminder that you can find links to everything we just talked about at humansinlove.com and if you'd like to look up sean directly you can go to docsmith.co before i let you go today i'll remind you once more that ratings reviews subscriptions are absolutely crucial to podcast success and i'd really appreciate it if you rated reviewed and subscribed to humans in love on apple podcasts or your podcast app of choice I am going to play you out this week with a particularly appropriate song. I've really been enjoying it lately. Uh, It's called Meet the Mother by an artist called Jonathan Rice. Be sure to look him up. He's great. And this song I feel is perfect to, uh, to cap off this episode. Before I let you go, I'll remind you that life is short. Far too short to make the wrong decision with who to spend the rest of your life with. Needless to say. Hope you enjoyed this one, folks. I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. You got got to meet meet the mother Before before you kiss the bride Before you take The longest ride Before the rice And flowers fly You've got to meet the mother Before you kiss the bride And see where she got Those big brown eyes Those long, long legs That sense of style Or a streak of madness Ten miles wide You've got to meet the mother Before you kiss the bride You could discover the cruelty Concealed deep within
in a county jail or a state run home in the driving hail she could have two good teeth and one good eye that's why you meet the mother before you kiss the bride some fruit rolls fly Before you kiss the bride 